Well, there you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This episode is edgy. It's a story that you need to hear. This combat veteran, a United States Marine, wrote the book, Thank You for Raping Me. She's got a lot to say, and she's going to definitely make a difference in the world. I really appreciate you tuning in today to this episode of Combat Veteran Wisdom. Thank you. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our veteran guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is Marine Corps Combat Sergeant Athena Ives. Athena is the author of the book Thank You for Raping Me. She holds a master's in forensics. As a child, Athena used reading to cope with ongoing trauma, which inspired her to study psychology and forensics. She plans to use her degree to research how to treat and understand the psychological triggers and effects of post-traumatic stress, suicide, and rape. When she isn't traveling the world, Athena resides in San Diego, where she is active in multiple veteran assistance projects and is currently a doctoral candidate in forensic psychology. So I guess that's the doctor in waiting. So <laughs> something Not like in the waiting room, but... No, no exactly. <laughs> I'm very thrilled and honored to have author and combat veteran from the United States Marine Corps, Athena Ives, on the show today. Hey, Athena. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I know. It's been, you know, we've talked a few times, and I've I've seen what you're doing out there, and... Uh, you know, honestly, I think it's great because I, I can relate to some of those things and uh, it's just good for you to be out there. But before we even get to the, that stuff, mm-hmm. let's talk about the Ives household or the way you were raised. Um, well, I actually legally changed my first name um, to separate any ties with my former family. So it is actually if you go, you know, get nosy and want to for some unknown reason, you know, claim stolen valor or something, you will not find the name Ives in my Marine Corps career. So that it's just, it's been changed for confidentiality issues and for a couple other things. So, but other than that, the story of my growing up, it's, it's very interesting because after I published, I have been finding out so many more things about my past that I didn't know about. Uh, people reaching out from my past, contacting me and it's just incredible how much damage the church I grew up going to has done to all these people not everyone but to a large amount and it's very it's interesting to hear about it's almost a great source of validation (laughs) you know when I was going to that church there they were you know I was the weird one I was abnormal for being like, these people are all nuts. They're crazy. Couldn't stand them, but I was forced to go. And just hearing all, like, finally, it's like, ah, vindication. You know, like, I knew you all were crazy. I knew you were bad people. So was, I'm assuming, you know, they say don't assume, but they, that they, your parents, that 
your parents basically took you to this church and forced you to go or oh absolutely yeah Yeah. we were forced to go twice on sundays and then once every wednesday evening so um, it's a reformed baptist you know a lot of times people hear the word baptist and they think of you know the like um the stereotypical like church where everyone's you know clapping and singing and you know like getting all into it in a happy and no that it's reformed baptist it's extremely different than baptist and basically if you didn't believe everything that they told you and shoved down their throat your throat you were going to hell and it was extremely chauvinistic like male sh- oh it was just it was horrible the pastors were just terrible well, you know, and we've talked about this, you know, not to digress, but maybe to digress, you know, <laughs> fear is, it's a great equalizer to, to just basically stomp the creativity out of you, you know, oh, absolutely. you know, I can relate to some of those church issues myself. This isn't really a show on church issues, but they do create them and kind of the same thing, you know, it's like, you know, how does a child have the ability to make a, a choice or a decision and, you know, maybe indoctrinated into something that they really don't agree with or that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, and, th- and then the list goes on, you know. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think people really understand and can comprehend the damage parents can do for the rest of that child's life. Like, it's, it's, a, it's amazing how much damage they can do. And I don't think that parents are held responsible enough. You know, I do believe that we should all be responsible for our own actions. But when you're brought up in a certain environment that is basically kind of brainwashing you and lying to you, it's extremely damaging. And it you, you will never recover from it fully. Like, I still go through, you know, it's, it's like a, you almost have to re-brainwash yourself. But if it took you so long to get there cognitively, it's not, you're never going to be, you know, what... It would have been if you had been brought up in a loving, nurturing, and honest household. Well, yeah, you know, you raise a good point there because there's there's corporal punishment and then there's abuse, and I definitely can re- relate to those. Uh, and then and I do know the distinction. And mm-hmm. then and then there's you know there's books on forgiveness that I've read, and it says you know they did the best they could do. Well, you know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But, uh, you know, I can relate to some of those very issues that you're discussing right now because, yeah, I get it. <laughs> and, and it's, I had, a, I had a female Marine actually reach out to me and she left a review on Amazon and she hit it right on the head. She said that my book is extremely raw and truthful and it's exposing a lot of hidden facts of life that people are too afraid to show or talk about. And that's, I think that's why my book is, is making such an impact is because finally someone is being honest and bringing up all of these really difficult topics that have just been taboo or it's not something you bring up at family dinner or Christmas holidays. It's, you know, they don't bring it up. They don't talk about it. They bury it. And then they just keep going on with their life. Yet these people are so damaged because of it, whatever trauma that they were exposed to, and they never deal with it. Other people reading my story and then reaching out, they're like, holy crap, this is, this is crazy. I didn't think anyone else went through this type of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, it is a lot of, 
it's a lot of different things that I've gone through, but a lot of people can relate to it. So, well, you know, we've jumped into some deep stuff right off the bat and it's a good thing. <laughs> no, no, it's good. You know, yeah. because I can tell you, I can relate, you know, I'm also, uh, come from some of that background and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was sitting down having lunch with a guy, you know, about a year and a half ago, business associate. And, you know, when I finally came out about my own, uh, childhood assault, you know, he was applauding that and how courageous I was and wanted to hear all about it. And and I felt great. You know, I have an ally here. Of course, he didn't have a similar story. But then through the grapevine a day or two later, a friend of mine said, you know, he was just repulsed by it. And, you know, so here I am sitting with this guy and he's acting all interested. But he was basically turned off to it and he didn't want to hear about it. And, you know, what was interesting was. That type of person is the exact reason that the things like that continue to happen because people don't want to hear about it. And, and you know, the more we talk about it, the more it comes to the surface, because I got to tell you, it's pandemic. Childhood nice. assault and childhood abuse and, you know, and, and everything. It's pandemic. And, and, and you know, we, we try to dust it underneath or brush it underneath the carpet. And it's time we don't do that, I think. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a big reason that continues. And I kind of, I compare it to, um, the, the the, the whole thing with the Catholic church, you know, that how many times for years and years and years, it was reported what these priests were doing and no one you know, they covered it up. They lied to him. They paid them off. They just, even the government was involved in this. Because the the massive influence the Catholic Church has, you know, it's it's disgusting what the media has done to. I, I I do I blame I blame the media for a lot of the the whole Me Too movement and how it's just turned into a joke. Yeah, and that know, that really angers me. You know, and it's kind of crazy. It's even like when you get in, like when I came out. You know, I had people you know, private messaging me on some of these social platforms saying, well, thank you for coming out. And, and by the way, when I was nine years old, I was over at uncle Billy's house and this happened to me. And, and then, you know, male and female telling me these horrific stories. And then you start hearing about sex trafficking and how yep. people at some of the very highest positions of government and business are, 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 they're involved. Yep. That's, that blows my mind. It, it used to, but since I've uh, been studying forensics and rapists and child molesters and sex trafficking for probably around 10, 11, 12 years. So I don't think anything shocks me anymore. I really, I, I think a lot of it has to do with money because uh, sex trafficking is what the third um, money revenue crime in the world. I think drugs and um, weapons. Weapons, I yeah. Too, yeah. I was, drugs and weapons are above it. Those, that was the last statistics I saw. And uh, the reason I got into it was because I'm the kind of person that, well, <laughs> backstory, um, my, my parents growing up told me that seahorses were like unicorns and dragons and dinosaurs because none of them were real. They compared dinosaurs to dragons. And so, you know, they tell me that the, the seahorse isn't real. And then all of a sudden I'm in an aquarium one day. <laughs> and I'm just a, mind blown. I was probably like, I don't know, 12 years old. There's 13. a seahorse, right? And I was like, wait a second. 
they they've been lying to me. And then I see, you know, in the museums of the dinosaur bones, and I'm like, wait, this is science. You can't like, I I understand the difference between faith and science, and so I'm a I'm a big facts person. I don't get on social media and be like, oh my gosh, you know, Tupac's dead or whoever and believe it. Like, no, I need actual proof. I need to see the dead bodies. Like, That's a big reason why I went into forensics was because I needed to be able to understand why people did what they did to me, why my family would, you know, like defend that. And just to get a bit of like a better understanding of why this is going on it, with rape and child molestation and different things like that. I, I spent months and months researching pedophiles and watching documentaries on them. And it helped me be able to cope with what I had been through. Yeah. And just my, my dissertation right now is on military cultural influence on resiliency in female or in male and female survivors of military sexual trauma. And just it's, it's so hard to pinpoint and to really get true statistics on this because like so many know there are a lot, a lot of false reports. And I think a big reason that is because these people that are coming forward and are all about reporting it, they aren't really, I mean, it, it really depends. I, I'm not a lie detector. I can't be in the room. I wasn't there when it happened. But I know firsthand of a situation where they this, this person regretted sleeping with someone and they lied about it and they got caught. And it was the same night that I had been drugged and raped while I was in the Marine Corps. And that's why I didn't go report it. So the people out there that are saying, oh, you know, you know, trust every woman. No, no, don't trust every woman. I, that's not at all what I believe because there are a bunch of people out there that will use these, you know, this movement or whatever you want to call it to political, you know, whatever political reason they're going, they're trying to go for or attention or money or whatever. And trust me, <laughs> I think there's someone that maybe not as much as the person, the person that was falsely accused, but I know firsthand, I hate, hate with a passion, the people that false report. And there's, to me, that punishment for them couldn't be stronger. Like they, that, well, that, you know, the false reporting ruins people's lives too. And Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and it's hard for me to, you know, I mean, I get it. You know, what happened to me happened 44 years ago. There's mm -hmm. no way I'm going to go back now and, 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 and point the finger. But even, even, you know, if it really happens, you know, and I understand the stigma and all that associated with it, why wait so long and then politicize it? You know, anyhow, that's a whole different subject. Yeah, I think with that, yeah, you're right. That is a different subject, and I have my opinions on that as well. But going back to like not reporting and different things like that, and I mean, if I were just basing it off statistics, you know, people say, "Oh, yeah, it's." Um, I think one out of every six women women will be raped in their lifetime, and 
they have out of like ever out of thousand reported rapes or out of a thousand rapes only like can't remember the exact statistic not a, a couple hundred maybe maybe 600 will report it 400 don't and then the only like there's like maybe four that will see prison time out of that out of all those rapes that's just an and, insane number you know yeah my, and for guys the stigma the reason why i didn't come forward because i even knew at 11 years old that there was a social stigma with that. Hold it now. I'm a guy that wasn't supposed to happen. And, nope. and somehow it would have been my fault. But then, you know, imagine, you know, a few years later in high school graduation, as people are snickering at you, there's the guy that was raped. You know, the social stigma yep. with that is, and for women, it's the same. You know, there's that's there's that that sleaze bag that, you know, that, that put herself in a situation, which is rubbish, but... Anyhow, I know we got let's we'll come back to some of that. Tell me how you got to the Marine Corps and what was that like? Getting there, uh, I was I had a full ride to play soccer in college. So right out of high school at 17 years old, I was playing soccer. And um, so I ended up tearing every ligament in my knee my freshman year. And my junior year, they took away my soccer scholarship. And I just, they weren't playing me. The coach didn't like me for some reason. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I wasn't a bench sitter. I played every game. And she was just letting me play like five minutes a game. And it was just killing me. So I was like, screw this. Left Michigan. Went back home to my home state, California. And then I got a job teaching preschool. And loved it. Loved teaching the kids. Was a very good teacher. But the pay in living in California, I couldn't. I, it was just miserable, you know. I had a, I couldn't afford to have my own place. Couldn't afford to do really much anything other than work all the time. So I had a couple Marine Corps friends, uh, roommates, and just to see, you know, they got leave all the time. They had more vacation than any other job I've ever heard of. So it was a. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't the reason. But yeah, I always, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, you love the <laughs> uniform. I know what's up. Yeah. I'd always wanted, I was always patriotic. I don't really know why, you know, growing up, I was just always, you know, the national anthem came on and I'd tear up and just be so proud of, to be an American and what the people that went before us have done. And I didn't, I knew I would regret not joining so I joined and became a Marine because to me that was the most difficult branch to get into. They just look good in uniform too. <laughs> that's you know what that's you know what we laugh about that, but it's true. I was telling a, yeah. a Marine Colonel I was talking to yesterday. I said, you know what? I got to tell you, man, when you guys put on those dress uniforms, it looks just incredible. And yeah. there's good, there's a certain amount of pride for sure that goes into that. I'm you know, come on. The Marine, Marine Corps uniform? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I went Marine Corps. So what was and it like when you got to basic? That what was Were you like, holy crap, what did I do? Or no? Um, It was more just, like, I really don't, I'm not a big, I don't have a lot of girlfriends. I have a lot more male friends. <laughs> like, I'm just, I was raised a tomboy. I, you know, I liked sports growing up, and I just, I... I relate to men more. So when I got there and it's just like all these women and like a lot of them fresh out of high school that had never, you know, really done or seen anything. 
and they're all out there crying and like I you know the stupid games drill instructors had us do was just you know these girls would be sobbing I'm like what what are you crying for come on grow up like so that was the most challenging aspect just having you know all of your freedoms taken away and then being shoved into this place where it's just confined with women and that was hard that was hard to deal with the physical aspect wasn't as because I was an athlete growing up um and the I liked you know just the actual military with the weapons and different things like that that I enjoyed I hated drill I hated marching so much but I had to learn so yeah but basic was it was horrible. I just wanted it over with, but where'd it wasn't. To, where did you go to that. basic? The women, all, all female Marines go to Paris Island, South Carolina. All of them? Yes. So what time of the year did you go through basic? Summer. Oh, great. And yeah. you know, everybody's heard about the Crucible. Tell us what that was about. Um, I think it's like a 48-hour. I can't remember all the specifics. You just... You don't even remember how long it is. You just remember that it's just never ending. And I think my crucible would have been much different. And I would have enjoyed it, actually, if I hadn't had a stress fracture in my right ankle. Uh, right before we went out, my I had to go to medical because um, I ended up having a stress fracture in my ankle. And they're going to drop me. And I was like, nope, nope. <laughs> I don't I'm care what ahead. I have to do through. I'm going through it. So just... Try, you know, sucking up the, and trying to um, get through it with that, with no painkillers, nothing, no ice, no wrap, nothing. It was just pure determination and like, you cannot take this honor graduate away from me. I'm, I earned it. I'm graduating with, you know, as their guide and wouldn't, couldn't stop me. So <laughs> did your fan, that's great. Did you, any of your family come to see you graduate? No, they did not. In fact, my, my lovely brother-in-law felt the need to call and tell me that no one was coming <laughs> real real winner that guy yeah i get it so so okay so you get out where was your first duty station at uh camp pendleton cool so you went back out to the west coast yep i was relieved to get back there um, now is it true though is it true that there's a big time rivalry between the east coast and the west coast marines it's kind of stupid. I mean, the males have it a lot more than the females do because we didn't have an option. We couldn't be a Hollywood Marine. So the big thing <laughs> with the Hollywood, Hollywood Marines is, is like, oh, well, we had the crucible. We had the hills that we had, you know, all that stuff that we had to go through. And then you have the and then you have the um, East Coast Marines that are like, well, we had to deal with the sand fleas and the humidity and the, all that. But, you know, no hills. So that's their big kind of like... Yeah, but the females, we don't have a choice. So You're all at the same just place. Go. Yeah. yeah, and sand, then sand fleas and heat. You had it. Yeah, so I mean, I got the experience, the sand fleas and the heat. But I also like as soon as I got to Pendleton, it was oh, now you get experience the hills because my my company just liked to do you know thirteen, fifteen like mile hikes with you know full gear on. So I learned all about the hills, and then we ran them all the time as well. So what was your job? I was a combat engineer, so more. Ex uh, we, I did more construction because we uh, back then females weren't allowed to be in line platoons. So I was attached to an engineer company, 
and it was more just construction. Not not a lot of demo, but we did do a, you know quite a bit of exploring, like explosives and stuff like that. But the I my um, when I deployed though they I was part of the lioness program so that's when they had the women um they would send us out with infantry units and we would help with entry checkpoints crowd control anything where they needed you know like um street patrols anything where they needed a woman a woman to be able to search the other women I was attached to infantry units so that's pretty much all I did on my deployment in 2008 to Fallujah so, so tell us about that that was that so you were there during the surge then? I was there in 2008, so it was... A little bit after, maybe. Yeah, it was tapering down. We still, it was, I mean, we've, we lost a lot of people. And, you know, we got shot at every day, mortared every day. It, it wasn't, you know... I think, I think it was um, actually starting to... And I was there... As, uh, when did I get there? I got there February of 2008. And it's interesting because when that when the weather starts to get warmer, that's when they be start becoming more active and a lot more IEDs. So you were there approximately one year? Uh, no, the Marines are only allowed to be there for seven months unless they, are, they have to sign a bunch of paperwork if they are going to stay on for another tour. But... Because of our jobs and what we go through, the Marine Corps has the shortest time. But that's because the cycle, you know, a lot of times, like, you're back here, you're back home for six months, and then you're gone for six months. You're back home for six, seven months, and then you're gone for... So the rotation is a lot different than the other branches. Or that's that's how it was when I served. I don't know what things are like now, but I think it's still the same. So you were a, you were an NCO E five. Yes, I um, got out as a sergeant. So you made when were you promoted? While you were overseas or before you? No, were- I I was meritorious promoted when I got back from my tour in Fallujah, and that was I picked up E five and under. A little, over, a little over three years, I think it was. So it was under four, definitely, but a little might have been just like three years in a month, which is very rare. Yeah. But you know, and it, what pissed me off is the people that I served with saying, "Oh, you got it." You know, I know why you got promoted from all your time on your knees, and if they had known all the times that I got passed over a meritoriously meritorious promotion for doing the right thing and for other people had their, you know, petty reasons why they wanted to blame me for something that I didn't do when they, it wasn't like, Oh, I didn't sleep with you. So they want to take out their anger on me through whatever reason I got screwed over so many times. I should have picked up a lot quicker than I did, but Oh, well, would you say that, you know, those types of things are rampant or just maybe just unit per unit or, you know, what was your experience with that? Um, I didn't have a very good unit. Uh, my leaders definitely were not quality. Some the, the ones that I came in contact with uh, and, and other units were amazing. And hearing other people's stories about their units, um, I just, 
I get, I think I just was with a really bad command and I, I did get to meet one very quality, uh, mentor and leader right before I got out. And he, he's still very good friend of mine. He's like my dad and for him, I'm very thankful. And then when I was actually, you know, People think that, oh, the grunt platoons are horrible. Infantry guys are all, like, bad and, like, horrible. They treat women like garbage. Oh, my God. I loved my the infantry guys, the units I was with. I, I wish I could have stayed with that unit instead of mine. I would have done anything. I Back, back where on, in Fallujah, we, you know, we had on the big base, there was, like, the the first sergeant was gonna go. She was going and getting her nails done, getting her you know her hair all fixed up. And I'm like, what is this? I hated it. Like you know how we had AC, we had all this stuff. We had a big chow hall. I couldn't. I hated it. I was like, I need to get away from this place because our command was so bad. You I mean you'd walk out of your room at like two o'clock in the morning? trying to, you know, not piss yourself because you've been holding it all night and the bathroom's like two blocks away and you're going to get screamed out if your hair's not in a bun and your shirt's not tucked in. It's like, come on. Yeah. So <laughs> I would, every opportunity I got, I was like, oh, I'll go out, volunteer. And I, you know, the places we stayed in were horrible. Like, like uh, the quad cons or the cans. Um, stayed in some of those that were just, you know, like... <laughs> No air conditioning, you know, really rough conditions. No shower for a month. I would have preferred that than having the luxuries of the main base. Oh, no, no thanks. Well, you know, it's obvious, too. You know, I, we talk about this so often with so many different people that, you know, units and, you know, it does get down to leadership, you know, and, and leadership. You know, some people, there's different types of leaders. You know, we're not here to castigate anybody, but some people think you just put rank on and it makes you a great leader. And a lot of times that has nothing to do with it. No. One of the main, one of the, I can't remember if it's a principle or if it's uh, a trait. I can't remember right now. But one of the things I definitely learned being in the Marines was know yourself and seek self-improvement. And also know your, um, know the, your, your, your people, like know who's, who you're in charge of. And the reason is, is because you have to know what kind of a leader you can be. And you have to look at your own strengths and weaknesses and work on your weaknesses and focus on your strengths. Because, you know, I don't do very well at screaming and yelling. So I'm going to have to adjust my approach and, you know, go it through this way. And a lot of times with leaders, they, they're, they're kind of, especially in the military, they're, it's not that they're brainwashed, but they're instructed that there's really only one kind of leader that's authoritarian. And if you actually look at history, the authoritarian leaders do well, but it, they, it, they don't last very long. It's the ones that inspire and motivate their their troops that do well a lot longer. Yeah. You know, I, I got to tell you, I was in, you know, back when I was in the service, they had three-year enlistments, and I went in for three years. And I got out as an E-5, too. And mm -hmm. But I have to say, I was blessed with great chains of command. And, you know, at that time, I think it was 
General Reimer, who went on, this is the 4th Infantry Division, who went on to become the general of the Army. But it was a phenomenal division. And it trickled down all the way down into the line units. And we, I had great uh, male and female uh, commanding officers. So it was, you know, I, I, I didn't I didn't see any of that nonsense that you describe. But, you know, I know it, it, it happens. Yeah, it's it's very... Yeah, it is. It's um, it happens all, all much too often than I, you know, would like. But I also know that there's a lot of good in the military, and I don't. I love the Marine Corps. I don't. I would never talk poorly about it. I will say though that there are a lot of individual Marines that were horrible leaders and are they don't take responsibility for their own actions and they got people killed and they you know destroyed some careers yeah that's too bad you know so your situation you know uh sexual trauma well in the marine corps was it reported or did you wait until you wrote the book i didn't report it no yeah because the, Any of them. yeah i mean the stigma that goes on with that and it's probably i think wasn't there a documentary on that Maybe a few documentaries. I don't know. Oh, there's been numerous ones. So so you got out. You came home. You got meritoriously uh, promoted to sergeant. And then you decided to get out. What was your transition like? I didn't decide to get out. I was forced out. Um, on our honorable discharge, I just, I, if you read the book, it's pretty messed up, but they did. I got kicked out for tattoos. Which is just, yeah, it's just kind of, it, it's, it's a long story and, you know, so that's all in my book too. But yeah, basically to sum everything up, I wanted to be a career Marine, but I was forced out and not allowed to, um, oh, and then when I went to go re-enlist, <laughs> they mysteriously, um, lost my paperwork that said I had the tattoo while I was in, so it was just one nightmare after another with that, but no. So I got out and I was, I had seven days. They gave me like seven days to check out and be done with the military. And half of that, well, more than half of that was spent at those stupid classes they make you go do, which are completely worthless and fill your head with lies and give you all this false hope when you actually get out and you're just like, Oh, gone. See you later. It's like, being divorced overnight and losing an entire family and then you're just done. But I was more prepared for it than most people because I had already had a job and lived on my own and had an apartment and paid bills. I had been living on my own since I was 17. So it wasn't too big of a change with that. But it was a struggle. I couldn't find work at all. I got out in 2010 and the economy was terrible. Oh, yeah. So I just, I went to school, um, finished my master's and then I went for a doctorate and that's what I'm working on now. Well, that's fantastic. You know, and it's, it's tough when you're on your own and, uh, you know, it's, and, and I've heard mixed reviews about transition from various branches, but there always seems to be like there wasn't enough or it wasn't explained properly. And we have some phenomenal people out there in the VA that I think are doing the best they can with what they've got. But I have heard that from many transitioning, you know, Marines and yeah. Army, Navy, Air Force that 
you know, that it can be really difficult. And that's why, you know, you hear about these numbers of suicides and it just, you know, it's a mess at times, you know? Yeah. So you got your master's in forensics. Mm-hmm. And then when did you decide to write your book? I was living in Thailand, actually studying sex trafficking for my dissertation. Um, I ended up having to change the topic of my dissertation because my findings were completely different than when I thought they would be. So I was studying and living in Thailand and a good friend of mine was just like blown away by some of the stories I had shared with them. And he's like, you need to write this down. He's a, he's a director. Um, he owns his own movie producing company and he does, he works with a lot of Asian, uh, like, you know, different movie companies and different things like that. So he wanted to turn it into a screenplay. And so I was like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll see what I can do. So I just started writing and it was extremely challenging because a lot of times with people that go through trauma, they, in order to cope with it, they lie to themselves. They bury their pain, they bury the event, and they don't ever bring it up. You know, I had grown up journaling. I wrote all the time. But I didn't write the truth. I wrote, ask, well, I, didn't, I, I take that back. I wrote the truth, but I left out the parts that were, like, you know, I didn't want to think about so I left out the trauma and this was the first time actually opening up and being honest with myself and putting it on paper was just, it was brutal. You know, I wrote, I wrote things in this book that I have never shared with anybody that I didn't even share in my own journal. Like that's how painful this was. And I got through it and my biggest, the, the biggest challenge was how to end it. And I asked him, I was like, well, I can't write a book now. Like, my ending is, what would it say? You know, I remember sitting, and when I got back to the States, I was sitting in a in a room that, like, someone let me stay in because I was homeless for a while, for a long time. And someone let me stay in their room, and I was just sitting in there trying to figure out how the hell I'm going to end this book. Like, what am I going to put? Like, oh, Athena Ives still lives at, you know, still is homeless, like still working on a doctorate she may never get. Like, I didn't want to, you know, like people to be like, what the hell? And, you know, like, I didn't want to push them to suicide. I was trying to give people hope to keep going. So I was like, how do I end this? So it was, uh, I think that was the, the biggest challenge was, and not only that, but the risk I took in publishing this story was, I mean, I don't know if you've had the chance to read it yet, but there's a lot of people I've really hurt and pissed off, and well, you I feel know, like, it's, yeah. feel a little like Snowden right now. Well, you know, it's, it's got to be you know very uh, you know therapeutic for one thing. But you know, I was talking to a, a person that had been through similar things, and he goes, you know, you know, it's it, it's it, it's in your DNA. It's it your it's in trauma becomes part of your cellular makeup. And he says, I don't think you ever get over it. It just gets no. different. It just, yeah. you learn, like you just said, you know, you learn coping a little better. And yeah, and, you, and you're definitely going to hurt people when you expose them for deeds like that. And, and I, I honestly believe that, 
writing about it, talking about it, getting it out there, you know, and as long as you don't fall in that category, making shit up, mm-hmm. that's the best thing you can do. Because even somebody that's the perpetrator needs to hear how it feels. And, oh, absolutely. And, you know, my, and I don't want to talk about me, I want to talk about you, but, uh, you know, mine was a, was a, an older kid, bigger because he had been held back in school. He'd been in like six or seven different foster homes. And then after he had done it, he said, you know, nobody's ever going to believe you. He said, and I'm sorry that I did that, but they're not going to believe you. So, yeah. you know, how, I, can't, I don't even know how to, you know, I haven't written a book, but, you know, what happened to him where he thought he had to do that to somebody? And when you're, when it's a friend, you know, talk about trust, you know, the deal. And if it's somebody that you love, you know, in, in a female situation, it's just got to just be horrendous. It's, uh, it's funny you say that because a, a big reason the I, I ended up self-publishing. And the reason I did was because publishing houses wouldn't go near the title. They wanted me to change it. They also was like, they were like, you can't publish this. Like, this is almost like softcore porn. I'm like, no, it's not. It's graphically describing an event that happened to me. And I'm sick and tired of people watering it down and making it out to be something like that. So, yes, it is common. And it's very sad. But, you know, the, the news, they don't, they, they, okay. So they say it's rape. There's so many different forms of it, of sexual assault, of sexual trauma, of sexual harassment. There's all sorts of different. So when you kind of just lump it all into one category, it really sugarcoats it. And it doesn't provide the graphic details that people need to know what others go through. And it's almost like it is, it's might sound stupid, but when you think about it, like the whole vampire thing, it's romanticizing murder. And a lot of times what the, you know, perpetrators do and rapists do is they try and romanticize that encounter. They try and turn it into, to feel better about themselves and justify their actions, but also to like, I don't know, in their own way, cope with their horrible disease or whatever it is that made them do those things. And I'm done sugarcoating. People need to know what it's like and what happens after and how it rips your heart out and destroys you or it can. Well, even like, you know, labeling, you know, and for a guy that was perpetrated against, you know, I became real sensitive to jokes about gay men. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I had that question, is there something going on with me that that maybe I don't know about? And and then, you know, the, the jokes that guys would sit around and tell about gay people just infuriated me. It became me. A, yeah. It made me a lot more sensitive to go, you know, you're talking about a human being. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it doesn't matter to me one way or another. You know, that's your life. You have one life. You live it the way you want to live it. But the reality is this. As long as we continue, as you say, Athena, you sugarcoat things, but also make fun and label people, we're never going to get anywhere. And that's, you know, one, you know, to me, you know, like Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I get it. I know why you're doing it. But the reality is, is every life matters mm-hmm. and humankind matters. You matter. I matter. Everything matters. The minute we start to label groups or put a, put a sticker on it. We, we've completely moved away from what the reality is. But I hear you. I, you know, I'm 
I, you know, I'm coming out too, you know, and I'm done, yeah. I'm done sugarcoating it, you know? Yeah. And guess what? If you don't want to hear about it, then fine. But the reality is because you don't want to hear about it, you're part of the problem and you're helping exactly. to, and you're helping to perpetuate it. That's a it reality. In- yeah. It was interesting. Cause I had this conversation. Uh, I shared my, the link to Amazon for my LinkedIn account and some guy gets on there and just, you know, word vomit, keyboard warrior status, like was all like, oh yeah, if you actually are telling the truth, basically called me a liar on my LinkedIn profile and just, you know, it all, he brought up the Kavanaugh case and he brought up all these other false accusations and he's like, oh, rape, you know, rape is, rape phenomenon is a myth and it's not true and all sure. these reports are all, and I'm like, okay. So I was like, you know what? Whatever happened to you, like to turn you into this person, I'm sorry. Cause a lot of times people that lash out like that, they're deflecting something. Yes. I told him, I was like, Hey, you know, if you, I'd be willing to explain, you know, tell you the truth about what happened to me. If you, if that's, if something, you know, if you'd be interested in that, I'm like, I completely understand your disgust and your hate of false reporting. I'm like, there's no one else other than the, you know, the, falsely accused that hates them more than I do. And he's like, Oh no, I don't want to waste my time, you know, having a conversation with a liar. I was like, okay, whatever. So I just ignored it. And then he emailed me like a week ago. And, uh, like, I guess he went and looked through my profile more and about my, I guess he read this paper that I had written on females in combat and different things like that. So he reached out me. So actually like had a, conversation. I was like, look, yes, you have an opinion. That's fine. But just to let you know, your opinion is ignorant because I gave you the opportunity to read a book. Like I would have, you know, I, you got the opportunity to hear it from the author herself, but you chose not to. So your opinion is ignorant because you were given the, the tools that you needed to make an educated opinion, but you didn't. So your opinion is an ignorant one. And not only is it an ignorant one, but you're the part of the problem. The huge reason people don't report are people like you. I have a lot of victims and other people that I work with that are going to read your comments about my book and my story. And they're never going to come forward after reading this. So congratulations. You're the reason people don't report. You're the reason this. And he was just like, oh, blown away. He was like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you know what? You need, yes, you have an opinion, but you need to also take responsibility for what your opinion can do to others. And that's what people don't realize. Yeah, you know, I read where 70% of the world's population has been through trauma at least once. And it doesn't have to be necessarily sexual. It can be divorce. Financial yeah. ruin. But the, the what really struck me is 35% of the world's population has been guesstimated has been through multiple trauma. So when mm-hmm. you when you think that 7 out of 10 people walking down the sidewalk have had a traumatic event happen in their lives, and, and almost 4 out of 10 have had multiple traumas, you know, we're living in a global population that has trauma written all over it. And unless we're sensitive to each other's positions, then we're going to continue to perpetrate and we're going to continue to, to, to create stigma and label people and we're never going to get anywhere. I, I, don't know. I, 
Yeah. I agree, but I also have seen a trend that people allow their traumatic event to completely control and steer the course of their life. Yeah, def- like make it. I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. They they they're defined by that. Yes. Yeah, and that and that's, that, that's a whole other subject too. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what my book is about. Is it's showing you. It's first of all the title is meant to evoke a very strong reaction, whether it's going to be like, oh, here we go, another false, uh, you know, falsely accused crazy person, like trying to blah, 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 or, oh, you know, oh, we have another one in the Me Too movement to just trying to make money and whatever. The, I get it every day. People like are like, oh, you're just trying to gain popularity and make money off of, you know, a trauma, like you're so messed up. I was like, okay. Your opinion doesn't mean anything to me because if, yes, it would if you actually read the book, but you didn't. So you have no, like, I, your opinion doesn't matter to me. But it's, um yeah, it's it's supposed to evoke yeah. a, a very strong reaction. And once you read it, I, people get it. Well, you know what, sometimes, that's, that's sometimes it takes, well, sometimes it takes a shock value. You know, I'm. I got to talk to you offline. I'm working on a project now called what's your apocalypse. And I think you would love it because it is in your face. It's an edgy thing that I'm coming up with that, that, that evokes, you know, a real thought process and something that's not group think and, and something that that's going to help people just like what you're doing, you know, you're helping so many people. So, you know, keep up the good work. You know, let me ask you this, you know, if you could give a message to the to the non-veteran world out there about combat veterans what would you want them to know and then a couple things or gosh i'm not done with you yet <laughs> you know uh what would you know what would you say to the guys and the gals that that wore the uniform that might be in a bad place and then you know what does freedom mean to you so three questions okay so the first one combat is different for everybody i went in with a much thicker skin and a lot more uh, traumatic events than most people. So I was in a weird way, more prepared than other people because it's resilience. You know, I've been exposed to a lot of trauma before deploying. So when I wasn't, you know, on my deployment, it was, I was able to block out a lot of the stuff because I had already developed that coping just to get through hardship and hard times. My biggest thing is just to the to the guys out there that, you know, go to combat and have females with them. Especially in my unit, I didn't feel like anybody had my back. I felt like it was just me and the entire, you know, by myself out there. And just keep that in mind and, you know, make just ask. Ask that they're, you know, how they're doing. Talk to them. Treat them like a a veteran or you know one of your brother or your sister treat them like that and coming back from combat uh people don't it's people don't realize how difficult it is and they don't especially like the veteran even going through it doesn't realize how difficult it is and they take out a lot of their I don't know. A lot of the negative gets pushed on to families and I know it's hard. And I just wish that the families wouldn't take it so personal. It's not about them. It's about that veteran that needs to mentally be able to handle with whatever they saw out there. 
So that's, I guess, about the combat. Does that answer kind of? Yeah, I mean, okay. it absolutely does. You know, what, what do you want the non-veterans to know, like the civilian population? Uh, that PTSD, whatever, people say PTSD. That's just what I use because it's the most common, you know, term. But they don't, they, you know, I think there's a very large misunderstanding of what that looks like. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a raging lunatic that's just going to snap and break things and curse and whatever. There's a lot of good in veterans. And they, a lot of times, they just needed to be treated normal. Not let, it's like, like some delicate flower or something. Just treat them like normal. And especially if you're, you know, a military wife or if you have a veteran that's in your family, don't go try and crack open the shell before they're ready. Like, I, I've seen so many marriages just go down the, you know, the toilet because these spouses try and, like, break it open before that, you know, their spouse or their significant other is ready. Just just give them time and just love them and don't try and open it until, like I said, because it's just it just makes you feel so alone. And not only that, but a lot of times that they don't understand, especially the wives, is that the men don't ever want them to know. Their husband doesn't want the, their wife to know what they went through because it will change how they see them in their eyes. And that's that's a big topic that I've had with a lot of my guy friends that they're like, I can't even talk to my wife. So they come and talk to me. And that's been damaging to a lot of marriages, unfortunately, because the the, the wife is like, oh, you can go confide in this chick, but you can't tell your own wife. And it's like, I never want you, my wife, the mother of my kids to know th what I went through. That's so a, definitely a good point. Yeah. And then the last, what was the last question? What does freedom mean to you? And is, oh. is freedom available to everybody in America, you think? That's a really good question. I haven't really thought about that. There's so many different aspects to freedom. But traveling definitely changed my insight into freedom and what it means, especially as a woman. You know, there is still women that I came in contact with that are treated worse than animals. So I feel very fortunate to be an American, especially a woman in America, that I have more rights than most other countries. And we can't really, you know, judge the entire world off of our own experience. And freedom also to me means being true to who I am and not being fake and phony and you know, trying to convince the world that I'm someone else. No, this is me. That's freedom to me is being able to be who I am. And hey, if you don't like it, I'm not doing anything wrong, not hurting anyone. So take it or leave it. Great answer. I mean, so how do people get your book or make contact with you if they want more information, Athena? Well, the title is kind of a hard one to forget. So if you just go on any Amazon, it is available internationally. So it's, um, yeah, just put in, thank you for raping me. And I've, I have friends in the UK and the Australia and Canada that have bought the book already. So it is available for any, you have to go to like Australia, Amazon or whatever country you're in. And then I also have a website, athenaives.com. And you can buy purchased signed or you can buy signed copies there. And it has the links to Amazon for the, the U.S. And 
also has a link to contact my email and i also am on facebook and instagram and twitter (laughs) (laughs) well you're out there so if you want to if you want a copy of the book by athena ives you know thank you for raping me it's out there amazon you can definitely get a copy and she'll even sign one for you all i can say is thank you for sharing uh your story today on straight out of combat and you know keep going you know what you're doing it's a good thing you know and you know, anytime you can help people uh, from their own dark place, you know, you got to admire that. And, you know, with Marines like you, I know we're in good hands. And I just uh, I just appreciate who you are and your time today on our on our podcast. Well, thanks for having me, John. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. 